everything that I learned at the Meadows about communication and vulnerability and knowing how to communicate without causing the other person to become defensive. Mm. I think that's the biggest tool, the biggest gift that I'll ever be able to give. Mm -hmm. And I'm already doing that in our kitchens. When we opened these two restaurants, I gave seminars on it. That's huge. It's, it's, It's those little things that that have really changed my life that I hope to um, to pass along. But quite honestly, right now, I'm struggling with the difference between responsibility and codependence. Mm-hmm. It's such a confusing world. Uh, I still don't understand it. It all boils down to suffering, really. Am I suffering because I think they might be suffering? Or... Am I suffering for self-serving things? And then it's just, or is this actually my job? Is this my responsibility as a person, as an employer? You know, drawing that line, protecting yourself, taking care of yourself while trying to take care of others is, it'll, it'll, that journey will never end. But I am now awake and aware. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh Someone, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me Today on the podcast, we welcome Sean Brock. Sean is a visionary James Beard award-winning chef who has redefined Southern cuisine. He founded, owns, and is the executive chef at multiple award-winning restaurants, including Husk, McCrady's, McCrady's Tavern, and Monero. Bon Appetit magazine named Husk the best new restaurant in America in 2011. Brock's first cookbook, Heritage, was released in October of 2014 and is a New York Times bestseller. He has also been nominated for Outstanding Chef and Rising Star Chef by the James Beard Foundation. Brock was one of the hosts of the second season of Mind of a Chef. For his work on the show, Brock was nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award. He will be featured in an upcoming Netflix food documentary, and he has a new cookbook coming out soon also. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Sean. He's a fascinating human being, but he's also probably one of the smartest people I've ever sat around or been with. You just heard a lot about what he does. Just wait till you hear who he is. Yes, we are so honored to get to share our friend Sean Brock with you today. Sean, I am so thrilled to get to sit here with you today. Thank you so much for coming. Likewise. I was just like driving here and I could just feel the excitement of being in a room um, with people who uh, think about the things that I'm now discovering and thinking about. Like it's just to think a year ago today, I was sitting um, at a treatment facility in Arizona, Mm -hmm. so scared, Mm -hmm. so confused. Um, so vulnerable, so humbled, um, just filled with gratitude today to be here. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to try not to cry like a little bee throughout (laughs) this thing, but oh gosh, I'm just, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but it's so cool just even studying about you, you know, researching, like I, I knew a lot because we're pals and your girlfriend's one of my best friends. And so I'm lucky enough to like you know, get to experience a lot of things firsthand and learn from you. But just study, I'm like, dear God, (laughs) like, first off, just all that you've accomplished and who you are and all of your accolades. I mean, it's, it's kind of just off the charts. I don't, I forget, I'm not like really in the food world, you know? And so every once in a while, while your name will just like be dropped, people will literally be like, you know, Sean Brock, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, Oh, because I forget. I I mean, it's just, you know, you're my pal and I know you make the most delicious food I've ever tasted, but like the world cares and they are taking notice. And so this is just, it's really incredible. Like you've just accomplished so much 
in 39 years and done so many things. But what we're so excited about talking about today is just the last year of your life has just changed drastically. So we're just really thrilled and honored to get to have an opportunity to see like all that you're learning and to glean some of the knowledge that you've attained this last year. And yeah, thank you for letting us go there. And I'm, I'm excited too. I mean, I, um, humbled and excited because this is what you said. I, I was thinking about it this morning and I would have this conversation 10 times over without any recording equipment or a podcast. I don't mm-hmm. care. I just want to have this conversation. And the yeah, fact that we get to here. have it and maybe it gets shared and helps a few people, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm also a little intimidated, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, but it's not, but what's what you say, it's not necessarily because- Feeling is mutual. <laughs> it's so real. Truly, I was like a giggle because like one day we were sitting at the house and my leg was like shaking and I, I commented something. I'm like, you know, that's what it does. I do that sometimes. Someone called me out on it when I'm hurting really bad. And he literally dove in and told me why and gave me all this. I'm like, wait, this is English. Like he gave me all the scientific reasoning behind why my leg shakes when I'm hurting. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you're brilliant. Like I just, it's so <laughs> incredible. Like you you know so much about so much and I know very little about hardly anything. And it's just so incredible and humbling to just like get to learn and glean. So this and is when awesome. it's, it's interesting because when, when curiosity and intellect mm. intersect, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. But then when you throw heart in there, mm. it's unstoppable. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, that's the first thing that we're talking about because I've been thinking a lot about it today, actually. And I was on my way to counseling and I was trying to figure out what was on my fear inventory. And I recently opened two restaurants in like a six-week period, which is suicide. Um, it really is. It's a, it's, a, it's a very dumb thing to be doing, especially at this stage in my recovery. And I kept questioning why. What is it about that 11-year-old kid that feels the need to constantly chase worth? Mm. And... That's where I don't understand moderation. I think this is what I'm making up today. Mm. Um, but that's what's cool about each day. You just wonder and, and learn and piece things together. But, you know, my father passed away when I was 11. Mm. And then uh, my mom uh, immediately had to go to work. She'd never worked outside of my father's um, trucking, uh, coal trucking business. And so she worked uh, from 3 to 12. And so I went to school from you know, eight to three. So I never really saw her. So I had to take care of my, my brother. And, and I just immediately at 11 felt this need to be, you know, in that role. You know, it's just a terrifying thing for an 11 year old kid to, to face. And looking back, like my workaholism, my perfectionism uh, is just trying to define worth. And then I realized today, like, I'm the one that defines my worth. You know, I've been worried about uh, what worth means. And there's the codependency side of that of I have to take care of all these people. You know, I have 600 and some employees. You know, I take care of my mother and my brother and Adi and two crazy dogs. And uh, that's what got me in trouble. I'd I'd spent my entire life uh, pretending to be the hero. And putting everybody else first um, because that's how I had worth. You know, it's like, that's, that's what kept me going and it broke me. Mm. You know, there's a reason that uh, they tell you to put the mask on yourself first on the airplane before helping somebody else. Cause you can't help someone else if you're not helping yourself. Yeah. I like what you said there when you said I had to uh, pretend I was the hero mm. But if I could finish that sentence, or maybe you could, from the 11-year-old seat, what I would say is because I had to. I did. I, I really had to. I, it was survival. And that's the interesting thing and fascinating thing about survival, especially when you start to, to understand the, the limbic part of your brain and how survival will turn you into a hero, mm. whether you like it or not. And I'd lived in that world for a long time. But in your case, it was real. You said you lost your dad at 11? Yeah. What happened? He, 
was uh, exactly like I was before I went to the Meadows. Uh, an alcoholic, workaholic perfectionist mm. who was in the same role because his father died when he was 11. Wow. And he was 39 uh, when he uh, passed away in front of me, actually, um, from massive oh, heart attack. Sure. And I turned 39 at the Meadows. Wow. So it's like this year has been yeah, a lot of uh, moments where you're just shaking your head. SMH. uh, (laughs) Well, they say you can't uh, connect the dots until you collect the dots. You've been doing a lot of collecting. That's Mm -hmm. poignant. Yeah, when I when I first went to the meadows, the first few days I was there. Obviously, at this point, um, just give a bit of a backstory. I I was dealing with um, uh, a newly diagnosed autoimmune disease called myasthenia gravis, which caused me to have six surgeries on my eyes which is a lot of recovery time and a lot of Percocets and, and a lot of not working and losing that worth. And I was just a very angry, um, uh, really sad person. And I just gotten to a point where I shut down. Like I froze. Um, I was in like a limbic freeze. My nervous system had gone so far for so long that finally it just said, that's it. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't read a sentence. I couldn't, like, I had all these books that I was trying to read, and I couldn't get past, like, four words. Mm. I was like a zombie. And um, when I arrived there, I was still a zombie. I remember the day I awoke from being a zombie uh, while mm. I was there. But at this point, I was still walking around um, frozen. And psychiatrist drew a circle and then a line right down the middle. And he wrote Chef uh, on one side and Sean on the other. He said, you've got this part figured out, the chef side. You have no clue about this guy. Yeah. And he's exactly right. I had no clue. Yeah. I'd never thought about it. being a chef. That's all I knew. That's, that's, that was, that's how I defined myself. Right. But that's, you know, that's work. And I now know that it was coping. Mm. Yeah. That's all you knew. It was a form of coping. Yeah. And that's what you were taught. And then I got rewarded for it. So why yeah. stop? Mm. You know, why, why take a step back and admit um, pain and suffering and struggle mm. when you're the hero? You're the hero of the family. You're the hero of the eight restaurants. You know, how dare you show weakness? Mm. Gosh, what a disservice that we put on people, putting them on that pedestal, you know, without them being to actually be seen for who they actually are and their but suffering. I didn't even know who I was. Right. I had no clue. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't spent one minute thinking about it. Yeah. I only knew who I was in the kitchen. Right. Mm. Um, I, I started working in the kitchen when I was 15. And until I broke my knee in 2014, um, I'd never I didn't watch TV. There was a yeah. long period of time where I didn't have a couch because I thought that was lazy. Mm. Um, I was just living this, uh, this, this life of fear, really just not having the tools or knowing. And the kitchen was a perfect place to hide in the darkness, Mm -hmm. you know, like not only was it a perfect place to hide, but the anger that I had as a, as a child, that's kind of part of being a chef. You're allowed Mm -hmm. to be angry all the time. You're kind of supposed to be, Mm -hmm. um, because yeah. everything has to be perfect. And it was just this now realizing now it was, it was an outlet for that discomfort and pain. Yeah. It's fascinating how I do agree that I think here's Sean, the chef and here's Sean, the person. And I don't know this part, but I know this part, but I'm interested to see as you begin to discover this part, are there parallels? Cause one of the things you said when I was reading maybe an older interview or watching an older interview and you were talking about, your passion for your art, culinary and, and food and farming. And and you said, I picked this out, it was profound to me. You said, uh, I think the question was, what's the most important thing you've learned in your career? And you said, knowledge and wisdom is everything. We must always research and understand our past or else our future is cloudy. I said that. You said that. <laughs> 
You wow. were talking about seeds. Yeah, that has a whole that has a completely but different that's meaning profound. now. Profound has a completely different meaning now, and yeah. because my worth was defined by my passion, like caring that much about a seed. You know, I, I, I still I've only met a couple other people who cared that much about seeds. You also mentioned something there. You said I took care of or had to take care of my brother. Mm-hmm. Was that a younger brother or yeah so um i have a brother who's three years younger uh than me who has um uh, special needs and so i became the father figure uh there and and still uh am to this very day Mm -hmm. but going back to the seed thing i'm now realizing that it's this desire to contribute to something and i gushed over victor frankl's man's search for meaning um so good I mean, that changed everything Still, for me. every yeah. time. And that's one of the things he talks about. And happiness isn't the end of the road. Meaning is what we're chasing. Happiness, and I was thinking about this today, it's just kind of an emotion that we can manipulate however we want mm. to feel that dopamine rush. And, and we're chasing that. Mm. Um, and we're very excited about talking about how happy we are. But that's not the end of the road. Genuinely curious about the eleven-year-old, and yeah, I lost my breath when you said I watched my dad die. Mm. You know, um, I keep on my phone the um, screensaver is uh, a lot of times a picture of me at that age, because you know, doing that inner child work, there's like a, such a um, relief when you're able to say everything's going to be all right. Yeah. It's like, whew, that's all you ever wanted to hear. Mm. Yeah. It's like, you just feel it. Like just, whoosh. and, um, you know, looking back, what would I've, you know, you, I ask myself that all the time. What would I've, if I had one piece of advice to give that 11 year old kid, you know, knowing what I know now, which isn't a whole lot, but it's more than I knew when I was 11. Um, and that's don't be a wimp and cry, you know, like, you think that crying makes you a wimp, but not crying makes you a wimp. Mm. That, and that because that's the when my my father died, I think I cried once. I didn't cry at the funeral, like I, I because I had to be this stoic hero. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't show that. Yeah, and that could have led to uh, understanding um, emotional health, uh, emotional intelligence a little bit more, and would have convinced me or. Um, at least uh, inspired me to to go to counseling or therapy. I had never been to counseling or therapy ever. I hadn't either until I was an adult. And I mean, I always joke and I'm like, I'm from this tiny little country town, but I have seen Jessica White, the dancing outlaw, <laughs> <laughs> which is where Sean is from in Virginia. And dear God, like we watched it in a social work class in college, truly. Like this is like learning how, like this, it was eye-opening on a level I didn't even understand. And, you know, like it's a different world, you know, where you're like, you're, you were in survival mode. It wasn't like, you know, extra money to go do self-care work. Like it's literally these people are surviving a harsh. And, you have to show strength and you have to be mm-hmm. that Hank Williams Jr. listening, Coors Banquet, beer drinking, yeah. tough guy with the chain wallet and, yeah. you know, stonewall yeah. face. Um, that's all I knew. Right. Mm. And that works wonderfully in the kitchen mm-hmm. as a chef. Right. Yeah. What was it like in the kitchen up until this year? What was What was your kitchen like? Like if I had to ask people that used to work for you, what it was like then, what would they say? Oh, um, I went through phases, but I think the first phase of, of running a kitchen, I was 24 at the Hermitage Hotel here in Nashville. And I was operating out of fear. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and um, anger and perfectionism hid that. Um, and then as I got older, um, that really didn't change. And if you do that year after year after year, you have to find a way to cope. Um, we're not wired or built to be able to withstand that kind of dysregulation in our nervous system for 12 hours every day. Yeah. 
And um, that's when the beer after work became eight beers after work. And that starts the spinning of, of the cycle of walking into work hungover, pounding head, feeling terrible, having to pretend like you're not, and um, just discharging your your fear and discomfort out on the person who didn't cut the carrot perfectly. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Just to get it out some way, Mm -hmm. because it had to go somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it came out sideways. And so working for me was... I don't know why people did it, to be honest. But that's also what made me fit so well into the kitchen is we put up with so much abuse and pain and suffering and struggling because that's how it's supposed to be. That's the only way you grow and, and become better. Which, wow, what a what a hoax that was or is. What a scam. But I didn't take mediocrity. You know, I didn't, I, I wouldn't put up with it. Um, at all and that still is wired in my brain those neuropathways are still alive and I battle them every day and that's where I am today it's like how can those two uh, beings on in that circle that the psychiatrist drew exist together Mm. because obviously I love what I do I love my profession it brings me so much joy, but it also brings almost an equal amount of pain because of now understanding the nervous system a little bit. Um, it's just a constant state of um, uh, just hyper arousal. Yeah. And you live in that for so long. Of course, you're going to be angry. <laughs> of course, you're going to be mean. You're f- suffering yeah. and you don't know how to ask for help. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here's what it was like working for me. When I walked into the kitchen, it was head down, don't say a word, don't make a mistake. Mm. And I did that on purpose. If you didn't do that when I came in the kitchen, I would destroy you. Mm. I would rip you to pieces mm. and lead by fear, which is because I, I was living in fear. Fear was my power. Luckily now, when I walk in the kitchen, it's high fives and chest bumps. You know, people are so excited to see me because yeah. I, I now walk in <laughs> glowing and shake everyone's hands. And, you know, like I'm, it's, a, it's a completely different world. this really great privilege of being connected, but also still kind of standing back and watching because, again, your girlfriend's my best friend. And I got to walk alongside her, you know. Thank you for that. uh, What a privilege, truly. Such a privilege to be there. But it's this humbling thing to be able to sit back and see in one year, which you just celebrated one year sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a huge huge deal. And I could cry. Um, to be able to um, watch you become who you are today, um, it makes me remember, like, I am so quick to put people in boxes and you're like, you know, this is who they are and this is what they are and this is what they're about. And Sean, it has been just a gift and awe-inspiring to see the difference in who you were December 2017 to early January to who you are today. I don't have anything to compare it to. It's been one of the most beautiful things that I've ever gotten to witness. And again, just such a privilege to get to watch because it reminds me, A, like none of us are beyond anything good or bad. You know, we can become such higher, better versions of ourselves. And people can change. Like, people can change. It reminds me of another Viktor Frankl quote. He said something like, you know, don't judge people for who they are. Judge them for who they could be and you will help them become who they mm. should be. Oh, Come on. Dear God. So that being said, <laughs> my Lord, will you take us back 
to that January 2017, you heard a knock on the door, where you were building up to that and why it all came to a head and like how the change happened. It was winter. It was like a, it was a rough winter and winter already has that, that dreary kind of, that, I don't like the cold. And uh, I'd not been able to work a lot because of all the surgeries. Um, One of the things about myasthenia gravis is stress and fatigue um, angers my immune system and it produces more antibodies that disturb the neuromuscular communication. So my vision goes double and my eyelids stop working. Um, I can't control them. They'll either be wide open or closed. So that kept me from having that worth. I felt worthless for the first time. And so if you think about that 11-year-old kid, it's like we have nothing now. Um, So I was just really um, suffering. And I just didn't know how to ask for help because I'd never been around anyone that told me how or I'd I'd never seen anyone ask for help. I'd just been in the kitchen with my head down my whole life. And um, after being diagnosed with my senior gravis and after the sixth surgery and the problems still uh, arising. Uh, I remember the first time I asked for help. I'm, I'm sure it was probably either early January or late December. I woke up hungover, of course, and angry. And uh, I tried to make breakfast and I couldn't make breakfast because I couldn't see. My vision was double. It still occurs sometimes. And I just like threw the pan down, like, I I need help. Like, I can't, when is this going to end? Is this going to end? Mm. This has to end. Living in that world of not not having an answer, sitting uh, at Vanderbilt and having the five best neurologists say, we've never seen anything like this. We don't know what to do. Mm. Like, this is crazy. Walking out of there, it's like, oof, I just didn't know what to do. Um, I did have a garage full of antique bourbon (laughs) and that allowed me for a brief period of time to not feel that, that, that pain and to, and it allowed me to calm, uh, those racing thoughts and, and pass out on the couch or the floor. (laughs) Um, but then it just started all over again. It was like going to war every day and you get to a point where, you just get really mad. And I apparently was projecting that way more than I'd ever projected. Everybody that knows me knows my intensity as, as, a, as a chef. And, but now people were seeing that was like a happy, passionate intensity. Now people were seeing that intensity um, fueled by suffering. And I was completely in a freeze. Um, I got into uh, an argument with Adi, and I'm sure it was early in the morning. And I just went to a hotel for like three or four days and stared at the wall. Like, I don't know what to do. No clue. Um, I ate and drank like a king for those four <laughs> days because that was comforting. Um, but I just had, I had no idea. Like, I just, like, at that point, having a, a fight with with Adi, it just felt like I had no one to turn to, no one to, to, like, I was just alone in this hotel room, just like, I don't know what to do. I just don't have, I don't have the answer. What was the emotion attached in that moment that I don't know what to do? Because I was in such a freeze, it was just this still, quiet, um, like the earth stopped moving, and it was just dead air, like, Mm. Nothing happening, so you feeling nothing, like thinking nothing, yeah. um, being nothing. It was the darkest, most terrible, awful place I've ever, I've ever been. And I went back to uh, my house to pack for a trip um, to Charleston. And I'd already planned, like, you know, who am I going to go drinking with as soon as I get out of work? And how much bourbon do I need to take with me? As I was packing that bourbon up, my doorbell rang, and I just thought it was the FedEx guy bringing me more whiskey, because (laughs) that's how the whiskey arrived at my house. 
And it wasn't. It was three people who um, I have a lot of respect for and admire a great deal, um, standing on my porch with the fear of God on their face, trembling. Mm. And uh, that moment mm. in my life was was interesting because deep down inside, I knew it was going to happen someday. Yeah. You know, I, it had to. My life it was unmanageable and wasn't sustainable. That had to happen someday. I would even fantasize about it, you know? Wow. Um, so it was just like the A-team just arrived. <laughs> was it relief? Oh, my God. It was a great, the surrendering was, was amazing. Mm. It was one of the greatest um, emotions I've ever felt. And you were able to feel it. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I think it's so important because there's so many people with I don't knows. Yeah. And who are facing adverse or who have faced adverse life circumstances and they're sitting alone right now with the feeling alone. And you describe what we call like a dissociated state, either chemically induced or, or not, but where your brain, you just don't feel anything. Vegetal depression. Yes. And, uh, and then suddenly there's this moment when the lights come on. Mm. It's almost like I wish the world could have that opportunity. Intervention is the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. I've ever facilitated. I've ever had facilitated. And, uh, the, the fact that people could care enough to walk up and be scared to death and show up anyway. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's a true gift that I think yeah. those of us in crisis get the gift of, but I think everybody else deserves to have people speak into them in that way. Yeah. And the codependent side of me at this stage a year later just wants to um, give that to everyone that I love, mm. but I'm not there yet. I've got a long ways to go before I can stop. Um, having my health at the top of the priority list. But the opportunities that I have been given to help people, that's just puts so much fuel in the tank. Mm. It's just unbelievable. So what is the meaning? You know, like, why am I here? Well, I think one of the things that truly, like, thrills me and excites me um, is I, I know for, like, me personally, with my obviously, you know, we have different stories, but my day in day out thing is like chronic pain. Right. And so for me being able to use my pain in a way that feels purposeful and helping other people has been such a healing life giving thing for me. And so I know we've talked about it a little bit off the mic, but I'm just really excited to see, because you have this vision, like you have this wealth of knowledge. You've gotten to like do really like self-care is almost like a full-time job. Like you are doing the freaking work, you know? And it's so interesting because I feel like in the food industry, it draws a certain personality type. Like addiction is rampant. It is just... It's a requirement. It's So (laughs) how do you feel like with this new knowledge of being able to put some pieces together and self-awareness and, you know, healing that you're in the process of ever going, you know, obviously process of, but what is your hope in terms of helping other people with, you know, that are in your industry and with this knowledge that you have, like, what would your hope be with that? Well, everything that I learned um, at the Meadows about communication and vulnerability and knowing how to communicate without causing the other person to become defensive. Mm. I think that's the biggest tool. Yeah the biggest gift that I'll ever be able to give. Mm -hmm. And I'm already doing that in our kitchens. When we opened these two restaurants, I gave seminars on it. You know, this is how you speak your truth authentically without posing a threat to the other person, because this is what happens when that person feels a threat. And that's huge. It's, it's it's those little things that, that have really changed my life that I hope to, um, to pass along. But, Quite honestly, right now, um, I'm struggling with the difference between uh, responsibility and codependence. Mm -hmm. It's such a confusing world. Uh, I still don't understand it. No, there's this battle between it's, it all boils down to suffering, really. Um, Am I suffering because I think they might be suffering or? Am I suffering for self-serving things? And, and it's just, or is this actually my job? Is this my responsibility as a person, as an employer? 
you know, drawing that line, protecting yourself, taking care of yourself while trying to take care of others is, it'll, it'll, that journey will never end. But I am now awake and aware. Yeah. Mm. Amen. I mean, like, I mean, that's the point of this whole podcast. Like, being honest, speaking out, speaking, like being vulnerable, even the fact that like with these last two restaurants, you're having those vulnerable, honest conversation. That is huge. That is like, it is not lost on me that that's going to change the whole modality of what these restaurants are going to be like. Like when that is what's set in place in the leadership, like that's a game change. That's a life changer. And there's no telling how many people who they worship you because of your work, you know, all of a sudden they're learning that. And, you know, when we're able to speak out loud, those things, we feel shame and just darkness about it. It takes the power away a little bit and it frees those around us to see that they're not alone and they can talk about it too, which also then frees them. And it's, it's a, it just builds on itself. And you're right. Like they feel that light. It feels so to- like even your willingness to sit down with us and be vulnerable and be open with us here. Like it's powerful. It's transformative and it's important. So I'm just so, I'm just really proud of you. Thank you. First off and grateful, like truly, truly grateful. And I'd love to hear a little bit. So you talked about what it's like when you got there. What was it like when you got to, the meadows and where you said I hadn't had that moment yet where I realized what was that shift and what helped you come to that moment when you're like the before and after when I woke up yeah I actually brought my journals with me um I I wrote a journal every day wow and it took a while I mean it may have been like the 12th or 14th day I'd have to look back but I just remember kind of like coming to and I was just standing in the grass listening to the birds, looking at the sky. I was just like, whoa, look how green the grass is. I was like, what the hell? I'm awake. And it was was one of those moments where it's like, God, you just feel it just shed off of you like scales. Just because when you realize it's possible, everything changes. Yes. When you taste it, Everything changes. And then you fight for that every day. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I remember um, my experience of that. I know I literally you just described exactly what I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here. I can't even like the. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. like mm. It's just crazy yeah. to be able to to be aware of that. Yeah. But to be able to sit in it yeah. and um, just reflect like wow yeah if that emotion so thankful if that emotion had words what would it say that's that's an amazing question um what would my chest say or what would the water tearing up in my eyeballs say if they could talk um thank god thank god (laughs) i love that that's beautiful Mm i think it's so uh easy to when we go through difficult circumstances to jump to the resiliency mm. and hotwire by, bypass the struggle and the fact that you you sit among us and uh and say i feel amazing and i'm so grateful and i struggle with this and because we could do a whole nother episode on the codependency thing i really having um uh, recovered recovering from it actually chose a career where I help people with it every day, I still struggle with it. Yeah. I have, I can, some days I come home and I'm so compassion fatigued from the chase. You said something once that um, I think about a lot because I'd made the mistake of making a list and crossing things off. Hmm. I thought that's how the process worked. I made a list of everything that I was scared of and everything that I thought needed to be addressed. And then I crossed it off and moved on to the next thing. But after hearing you say it doesn't work that way, um, I realized how, like you said, how easy it is to, um, it's like the pink cloud kind of theory within sobriety. It's so easy to stare at the birds and the bee and the grass and the sun and, and forget that real life is difficult and it never ends and you will, um, uh, experience suffering. And I got to a point where 
my obsessive nature began looking for that pain, began looking for the suffering, looking for the gifts that hide in that um, box wrapped in sorrow, pain, guilt, and (laughs) every difficult emotion you could ever imagine. I got to a point where um, I wasn't scared of fear anymore. Hmm. It's a completely different word to me now. It's now like a, it's almost a responsibility to communicate and be open about the fear. This is what I'm concerned about right now. Because if you don't, it will eat you alive. Hmm. We had a really tough night in the kitchen and one of the restaurant openings, um, one of the worst nights I've ever had in my career. And I sat everyone down, the whole team, 20 some, 20 people or so, 15 or 20 people. And I had each person tell me two things they were grateful for and two things that were scaring them right now. Mm. And the next night's service was unbelievable. Wow. That's so... It was unbelievable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> permission. Yes, wow. Permission. So how does, I'm curious about this. I think not only is it a cultural norm in the hospitality industry, um, I work more in the music and film space with artists and same there. The creative brain, I think, sometimes is susceptible to this you know, condition because, in a sense, it's the gift and burden of being an empath. You feel things much deeper, and so you end up medicating what you feel because we're highly sensitive creatures. So I think it's a cultural norm for addiction to be rampant. As a matter of fact, there's research supporting that. But I also think there's this, and again... I feel like I'm a new fan of the culinary world, in part because of you and just being fascinated by, and it's it's huge. Uh, but I also think it's a norm for for people to have perfectionism and anger as a way to manage a management style. But perfectionism, in some ways, supported you in building what you built. So how does the fist-bumping, um, light-bearing, hugging leader still hold the high standard in the kitchen? Witnessing that um, on a daily basis is is an amazing thing. To be able to stand beside someone who is is struggling with their work um, as a chef, whether it's in the middle of service when guests are paying money and becoming angry because it's taking too long, and um, saying to them, just uh, take four seconds and orient you know, just get out of this space for a second and then come back. Now you see the difference and just to see them be like, whoa, and then make the plate perfectly. Mm. Um, because what was happening that I make up is when I would come into the kitchen, service would just go, everybody would figure out how to cook. The fear that I thought was needed for perfectionism caused everyone to go in survival limbic and lose use of their prefrontal cortex and forget everything. So smart. And so now all I want to do is like, let's get back to here. I know what you're feeling. I've been there. Yeah. But trust me, let's do this for a minute and then we'll all come back. I'll just stop service and be like, stop. No one say a word for two minutes, set a timer, close your eyes and then boom. That doesn't happen in the kitchen. No. It doesn't happen anywhere. Ever. It's Every inc- boss in the world needs truly, to hear this right now. That's so important. Because you're not sacrificing the standard. No, you're still putting you're it You're actually making it better. You're just standard. supporting you're supporting change in the right way to help got people. Crazy get there. chill bumps on the right side of my body. Um, and before service uh, at the restaurant here, we'll 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 set a timer for two minutes. And you can give yourself two minutes when you're sitting in it. Two minutes seems like two hours. Mm. It's and if you look at your watch, it's like I just, I could have been on Instagram for two minutes, but instead I brought myself down to, to the ground. It's crazy. It's un, it's unbelievable to see it um, working in an industry that is just uh, as stressful as, as you could imagine. And I, I know just like cooking, that's stressful. It is. Yeah. I'm living proof. Yeah. Someone that's in the place that you were talking about earlier, that just dark, you know, well, you can't see light. You feel like there's no hope. What would you say to those people? Because people are suffering. Like there are people listening to this right now that are in the thick of it who, 
And if they aren't right now, they have been and they know the feeling or it might happen. You know, like pain is so universal and life is freaking hard. What would you want to say to those people? It's as simple as it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. And it's that simple. Mm. Because if you know that and you trust the person saying that, that will hopefully allow you to surrender and, and snap out of it. Um, because when you're in it like that, you don't think there is another way. You don't think that light exists to be able to even shine through whatever crack there is. Um, but one of the things that, that just brings me back is just saying, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like just do your best. Realize that you're doing your best. And you are alive. Everything's going to be okay. You know, and it's just, it's an arm's length. It's right there. But if you don't know what's behind that door, mm. you know, you see that doorknob as a glowing red fireball. Yeah. Like in Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't think we ever outgrow the need for that message. Yeah. Whether we know it or not. Yeah. I need it almost daily, but we all do. It's yeah. gonna, it's okay. Yeah. It's gonna be okay. But you know what? When I hear it from you, I believe it. I hope it's true. <laughs> I'm trying to convince myself all day. And so far, that's been okay. Part of, in in my personal journey and then also in my profession, really we're teaching people to say what they need to say, to speak their truth, say the unsaid. It's part of the reason we did this podcast is, and because of what I do, a lot of people said, oh, is this going to be like a therapy session? I said, no, we're not here to try to resolve issues. We're here to speak truth to issues. And we're okay sitting in the discomfort of unresolved. And be curious. And be curious. Yes. And be empathetic towards our process. That's I feel like that's who we are and that's who we're becoming. But And we help people do relationship differently with themselves and other people. And that's something I work on all the time. You mentioned earlier isolation that you're... And I, I do that. So I'm, I have a lot of acquaintances and a very few friends. And if I'm not careful, that friend circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was just curious. Mine is tiny right now. I was going to say, who's... Yeah. yeah, mine's way too small right now. Um, and last night, going to um, uh, one of the rooms, that's what I have to do because, you know, we all know we're hardwired for connection and we're, we have to be part of a pack and and that connection is, is essential and critical to, um, even if you're happy, even if you can say, I'm, I'm pretty darn happy. If you don't have anyone to share it with, it's like the tree falling in the woods. You know, that's, it, that just, it just, it just keeps lifting you when, when you're around other people who um, are speaking that same language and who can empathize with what um, you've struggled with and to stand there together and smile. It's amazing. I think that's an important message because I think you're one of the most well-known chefs on the planet. And there's a lot of people that look up to you, a lot of kids I know that would look up to you and would think that someone with that kind of platform that's known in that way could never feel lonely or, or not have an abundance of friends. But the reality is we're all human beings. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Just got to keep reminding myself that put the guitar down, put the Frenchie down, <laughs> like go outside and hang out with people. Yeah. It's amazing. But isolation is... Um, by design, uh, 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 the swampland of shame and of, of your, it's, it's, that's where if you're not careful, shame will uh, do its best work mm. and guilt. If you could go back to um, you as you now to your dad at 38, what would you want to say to him? Hang on a second, Rachel. <laughs> Looks just like me, huh? He is your clone okay tell the audience what i just gave you it is an amazing picture of my father with um a 70s leisure suit on (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a beard that i wish i could grow and unbelievable hair (laughs) which you have you are his clone but that's those are my eyes yeah that's my nose and and that's crazy And and i have I've had, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to have these conversations yeah. in the group, you know, environment. Um, and it was, um, wow, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. 
know, you, you do these experientials with an empty chair and you write a letter. And I remember when it was time to face my father, I couldn't read the paper because I was trim. I had such full body trembles mm. that I, I actually, I couldn't do it. The page was shaking so much that I, that I couldn't do it. And the lesson that I've learned that I wish he would have learned is, you know, you don't have to kill yourself to take care of everybody else. Like you have mm. to, you have to stop and take care of yourself. I hope every generation has the courage to break some patterns from the generation before them. Because here's the thing, I've got a five-month-old boy and I know I'm going to screw him up in some ways. There's no way to do it perfectly. And I hope at some point he's able to take and have take the lessons, have the permission to do things different than yeah. I did. And I think if there was one thing that you've done, um, and maybe if your dad had a message for you today, my guess is it would be that I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. As I said here today, I've broken the cycle, you know, and, and that's, um, poof, what a gift. Yes. I mean, what an overwhelming sense of uh, a, a, a different kind of success and worth. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I have to, and this is, codependency and this is why i'd still go to counseling as much as i can is you know that can change tomorrow if i don't take care of myself and remind myself what the consequences are and realize that consequences are a gift and this amazing feeling that i have can just go up in flames tomorrow yeah if i don't make the next right decision Mm. i love that I know you've got some exciting things that uh, that are coming up. And thank you, by the way. I know yeah. most podcasts would be all about that. Let's tell me everything about what you're doing and who you are. And you've spent uh, a lot of time telling us about you and your heart. Mm. And I think it's going to ripple out and touch a lot of people in your industry and not in your industry. Yes. What a privilege. But we do want to hear, and I know people are curious about what's coming up with you and what's new. And you just mentioned you just opened a couple of new restaurants. So... Maybe you give us a quick sneak peek of those, and then I know. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'll always be a chef. I was actually talking about it in therapy today. It's I'll continue my my passion with, with my culinary journey, but you know, I think there's there's more out there for me, um, a, a lot more, and uh, you know, about to turn forty, and uh, I feel like things are just starting. <laughs> it's. Yeah. I feel like an infant that knows nothing and um, just this wild-eyed desire of, you know, and curiosity to um, explore and discover the right side of that circle, not the chef's side, the Sean side. Um, One of the reasons I'm so thankful to be here today was was a big reminder that this kind of conversation uh, is really important to me right now and critical um, for my recovery. So the first year of, of my recovery, besides the New York Times article, I, I didn't really, I didn't want to push it on people because it was so early in my recovery. So now I hope to um, become more connected with, with people who speak this language. And um, I'm, I'm starting a project that will hopefully grow into a lifelong um, journey of discovery. It's called uh, Before It's Too Late. And it started as a way to um, look at the word-of-mouth recipes of the Appalachian Mountains that aren't written down and and provide so much to a culture, um, communal pride and deliciousness and all those wonderful things that food allows us to be connected to. But as I started thinking about that phrase, before it's too late, it was almost too late for me, you know? And I had to make... Uh, an incredible change, and I didn't have the ability to do it by myself. That topic can just go on and on and on, and I look forward to that. Um, I just finished filming a documentary for Netflix about my life, and uh, it's going to be out there in the world, and hopefully um, the way I feel when I watch it, um, it will translate into people who aren't just in the culinary world, just human beings in general, um, to see um, what another person's journey entails and how um, if you uh, surround yourself with the right people, um, happiness is ahead. I love 
love that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch it now. <laughs> oh, my God. Awesome. So you, good. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your professional stuff? No. I, you know, it's so funny. I don't... It's. It used to be all I knew and all I talked about hmm. and uh, all I was interested in. Now, uh, there's just so much more. I love it. I love it, too. Well, one last thing. We've got a, one more picture um, that we uh, printed out. <laughs> I love this photo. So it's a photo of me <laughs> under a wagon wheel um, with blonde, shaggy hair. I don't know what kind of smirk that is. And I'm missing one shoe. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say <laughs> that I didn't even care that I only had one shoe on <laughs> you know what an innocent uh, mm. photo you know of, of such an innocent human being one of the things we always love to do is to is to ask if you could speak something into that younger version of, of who you are what kind of wisdom would you drop on him well I know that one of my biggest regrets that I've changed is um, asking for help um, and not trying to be the hero. It's been my biggest lesson. Um, but, you know, it's complicated because I realized it at 39 for a reason. So I don't know if I would want to ruin it for that kid. <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit later in life. But the experiences that I had up until now were the seeds that built this happiness that I'm sitting in right now. Um, yeah, I mean, really, the best advice is just to be present. Be present and do your best, because that's all you can do. That's it. I'm thinking about him at 12, but I, I, what I want to say to him is that at some point in life, you're going to be dealt with some unfortunate circumstances, and you're going to deal with some adversity, and it's going to be challenging, and I am damn proud of the way you're going to deal with it. Mm. Totally. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's the inner child work is, um, it gets me through the day. I'll look mm -hmm. at that picture of me when I was 11 and say, what do you need right now? Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. One of the questions that we love to ask all of our guests is like, what was never said to you as a child that you needed to hear? You should probably cry if you feel like you need to cry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emotions aren't weakness. Weakness is not showing emotion. Yeah, that's huge. And just the freedom to like be in it. You know, I mean, it. one of the things I remember learning at OnSite, they were talking about like how when, you know, you'd walk in on your parents and like your mom might be crying and she'd act like, mm -hmm. she's like, oh, I'm not crying. Everything's fine. And it's teaching a child that like you can't believe what you're seeing and or that that's not okay and you're not allowed to do that, you know, because I mean, I experienced that so many times and you're I mean, like. How many times have I teared up in this thing? Like five, six times? <laughs> yeah. That would not have happened a year ago. Yeah. Mm. Oh. That makes my heart <laughs> sing. Oh, I love that so much. That's beautiful. One thing you're willing to do as a stretch. You mentioned um, you need to work on the isolation thing, but one one thing you actually have an agenda here. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I preach all the time to people in the helping profession, do not have an agenda. And I've got one, so I'm calling myself out. You said you got a birthday coming up. My guess is you're probably going to spend your birthdays in the way that I like to spend mine, which is no attention, all alone, I'm good. Would you be open to a small group, and I'm just going to invite myself and Ruthie <laughs> yes. uh, to celebrate you? If you let me cook. Hmm. Um, update? That's my dream life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I looked at you to see if it was okay. I looked at you because I know Ruthie's only like, is it okay if I get excited about this? <laughs> yes. Oh. Uh, um, yeah, that's a good trade-off. Yeah, the only that. time I've ever cried over a meal is Sean Brock's food. <laughs> I got like a little bitch. Thanksgiving like, was so much fun. Uh, yeah, we did it, Thanksgiving this year together. And it, it, was it went from just Adi and I to um, you know a house filled with mm. just so much uh, love. It's on. We got a date. Oh my God. <laughs> awesome. I'm living my best life right now. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. So much. Incredible honor and privilege to be here. Thanks mm. for thinking about me. Make up fake love, make them all laugh Come on, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me
thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP Hallucinate, and I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon, and you should check them out. They're amazing. Definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing, and you're going to love them as much as we do. If you want to learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guests. And please follow us on Instagram at The Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.